It's my pleasure to welcome everyone to these John Locke lectures, uh, everyone from Oxford and uh, beyond. Um, and it's my um, special pleasure to introduce this year's lecturer, uh, John Cooper, who's Henry Putnam University Professor of Philosophy at uh, Princeton. Uh, John was an undergraduate at Harvard College, where he was actually a student of Werner Jaeger, one of his last uh, students. He received a BPhil from Oxford, where he was a member of Corpus Christi College, and he was supervised by Gwil Owen for his thesis on uh, first philosophy in Aristotle. He received a PhD from Harvard University, supervised by Owen, and he wrote a thesis there on Plato's Theotetus, uh, subsequently published. He's taught about five years at Harvard, about ten years at Pittsburgh, and since 1981 at uh, Princeton. Uh, he's been a member of the... Um, of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences for the last 10 years, and he's an honorary fellow of Corpus. Um, so apart from his teaching and publication and supervision, um, maybe it's worth mentioning two less visible forms of service to uh, contemporary philosophy. He's not only served as department chair at Pittsburgh for four years and at Princeton for eight years, he's also taken on a number of rather difficult and demanding roles in the American Philosophical Association. He's, for instance, been president of the Eastern Division and um, vice chair of the National Board of Officers. He's been a consultant to Hackett Publishing Company for, I suppose, the last 30 years or so. And that means that he's reviewed and scrutinized and corrected the translations and editions of, among other things, the ancient philosophical texts that have been published by um, uh, Hackett uh, in that period. So, Readers of these translations owe John um, a very large debt of gratitude for the improvements that he's introduced. How large a debt they owe, only the translators really know. Uh, but um, uh, he's made a great contribution uh, invisibly uh, um, to these um, um, uh, translations. The largest single work, of course, that's benefited from this sort of attention is The Complete Plato, uh, published by Hackett, which uh, should now be the first choice of everyone who wants all of Plato, uh, and a bit more than all of Plato, in one volume. <laughs> well, his knowledge and interests extend over uh, ancient philosophy as a whole, and they're not even fully represented by the range of his um, published work. Uh, but his work um, extends over many periods and questions in ancient philosophy, um, metaphysics, ethics, moral psychology, uh, including Plato, Aristotle, the Hellenistic schools. But perhaps it's fair to say that its central focus is Aristotle, and within that, perhaps, um, Aristotle's Ethics, the topic of his first book, uh, 
uh, Reason and Human Good in Aristotle and of many of his most influential papers. So on the human good, on um, topics in moral psychology, uh, friendship, uh, political theory, among other things. In recent years, he's also built up an important corpus of essays on Hellenistic ethics. And many of these papers have been collected in two volumes of uh, collected essays. Well, as what I've just said would suggest, since writing his first book, his preferred mode of publication has been the essay. And uh, his work really provides many models of the philosophical essay. And by that I mean that, for instance, they make fundamental contributions to their subject. They set the agenda for later students of the subject. The reader can return to them again and again, learn something new from them each time. They deal with the central question through an exact discussion of the primary sources and with reference to the relevant secondary sources. And not the least important feature is that they are written in lucid and elegant English that makes them a source of pleasure as well as instruction for the reader. So if you wanted to explain why the philosophical essay is an effective means of intellectual communication, you couldn't do better than point to John's essays. And for the same reason, if you wanted to advise, for instance, a graduate student about how to construct paper and about how to make it readable, uh, you couldn't offer them a better model than one of these um, papers. Well, I was thinking of a way to sum up uh, John's work, and um, then I recalled a passage in the preface to his first book, where he mentions Gwil Owen and John Rawls, and uh, this is what he says. I'm indebted to Gwil Owen, whose work has been for me a model of what scholarly rigour and philosophical subtlety together can accomplish in the study of ancient texts. I owe much also to John Rawls for the example he's provided of the fruitfulness of systematic thinking on moral subjects. So I think it would just be accurate to say that in John we can find a model of what can be accomplished in the study of ancient texts by scholarly rigour, philosophical subtlety and systematic thinking on moral subjects. And I'm sure you'll hear this for yourself in the following lectures on ancient Greek philosophies as ways of life. Could you join me in welcoming John Cooper to give our lecture? Thank you, Terry, for such a splendid uh, introduction. Um, I didn't know some of the things you said about me, but it's okay. Uh, and thank you all for coming. Uh, to anyone familiar with current philosophy, it must sound quite strange that philosophy or a philosophy, that is, a set of philosophical views, however comprehensive, could be, that is, could all by itself constitute, for its adherence, a total, all-consuming way of life. 
By philosophy here I mean rigorous academic philosophy as opposed to works of advice and uplift, including ones that are often popularly spoken of as works of philosophy, or ones that are said to contain and advocate a, quote, philosophy of life. Philosophy in that strict and narrow usage, both nowadays and all the way back in a continuous history to the earliest philosophers of Greek antiquity, is an enterprise of rigorously disciplined, reasoned analysis and argumentation. And in most of this history, philosophers have professed, as something essential to what it is, to be aiming always at discovering, through the disciplined use of philosophical reason, the real truth about the topics that philosophers investigate. Even if knowing such important truths, or thinking you do, may alter, even radically, your orientation to life, how could that all by itself constitute for you your total way of life? Isn't there a gap even between knowing, or thinking you know, how you ought to live your whole life in all its aspects, or how it is best to live and actually living your life? Yet, in a 1,000-year-long tradition of philosophy in antiquity, from Socrates through to Plotinus and his successor Platonus of the 3rd to 6th centuries of the Common Era, as I will attempt in these lectures to show and explain, philosophy was so conceived and so studied. In this first lecture, I will try first to explain what, as I have come to understand it, philosophy conceived as a way of life, and not just an intellectual discipline, actually amounted to when viewed from within the ancient philosophical tradition itself. I'll be talking about the idea that philosophy is or can be, or even ought to be, a way of life. In this, I'm following in the footsteps of the eminent French scholar of Plotinus and Platonism, the late Pierre Adot, whose work along these lines burst on the English-speaking intellectual scene in the mid-1990s. I will remark briefly at the end of my lecture today on those differences. But for most of the lecture, I will just proceed to explain in my own, turn, in my own way and to discuss how those ancient philosophers who presented their philosophies as ways of life understood what they were doing and what brought them to conceive philosophy that way. What does a philosophy that is also intended to be a, life, a way of life involve? What, in the philosophical views of some ancient philosophers, made it possible for them to really, really to conceive philosophy in that way? Not every ancient philosopher thought of philosophy that way, but beginning, I will argue, with Socrates, with a long, but beginning, I will argue with Socrates, a long series of Greek philosophers following Socrates' lead did so conceive it. Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus and his followers, Stoic philosophers from Zeno and Chrysippus onward, the Peronian skeptics of the first century BCE up to the time of Sextus Empiricus three centuries later, and late Platonists, including notably Plotinus and his successors, down to the death of pagan philosophy altogether in the sixth century. My focus today will be on the central unifying ideas about philosophy and about human life that this whole tradition shares as an inheritance from Socrates. We find this inheritance expressed and elaborated in amazingly multifarious ways that I will explore and discuss in subsequent lectures and seminars. A Stoic way of life is a very different one from a Socratic way. 
or an Epicurean or Peronian skeptic one, let alone from the Platonist life of someone like Plotinus. I want to insist on this variety and on the importance of emphasizing it if one is to understand what philosophy as a way of life in antiquity actually amounted to. Today I will go into details only about Socrates, um, who on my account is the one who first got even the idea of making philosophy a way of life, and whose ideas about philosophy and its role in our lives, if they were to be well lived, defined and sustained the whole later tradition. By that means, I hope to, to make concrete what will otherwise, I'm afraid, be a rather abstract account. I begin with some further remarks about recent and contemporary philosophy and its relationship to ancient philosophy. Nowadays, of course, philosophy is really only a subject of study. No one thinks of serious philosophy as carried on in an academic setting as defining and somehow constituting a total way of life. In this, philosophy is just like all the other established specialties in contemporary higher education. Colleges everywhere have departments of philosophy offering undergraduate degrees in the subject, just like degrees in mathematics or engineering or French language and literature. These departments are staffed with lecturers and professors with advanced degrees, certifying their preparation as professional philosophers, as people who pursue, to, who pursue research in the field and write articles and books of philosophy and on philosophy, just as physics lecturers do physics and write on physics, or anthropologists do and write on anthropology. Still, even as a subject of study, philosophy is different in one way from all these others. This concerns ethics or moral philosophy as one component of the philosophy curriculum. As has been practiced since the Renaissance, you, you can look at handout number two here, philosophy is traditionally con conceived as composed of three branches, namely natural philosophy, metaphysical philosophy, and moral philosophy. More common nowadays is the threesome of metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Of course, other contemporary specialties not easily brought under any of these three principal headings are recognized too. Logic, philosophy of language, philosophy of art, and so on. Similarly, in ancient philosophy, from the time of the Stoics and Epicureans, there was a standard threesome too. Dialectic, which included logic, philosophy of language, and epistemology. Philosophy of nature, what they called physics, and ethics. Now, what stands out in all these divisions of the subject, ancient, modern, um, uh, early modern and modern philosophy and contemporary philosophy, is the, is the enduring presence of ethics or moral philosophy as one of the three principal components of philosophy as a whole. The presence of ethics as a branch of philosophy really does, as I will explain in just a moment, set philosophy, even contemporary and modern philosophy, in some ways apart from what goes on in the other college and university departments. It is true, however, that in the ancient scheme, ethics, or ethike in Greek, meant something rather different from what it means today, what ethics means today. It meant, quite precisely, the philosophical study of human moral character, good and bad, and of the determinative function 
in structuring a person's life that their character was assumed by the ancients to have. Their character being their particular outlook on human life, psychologically settled and effective for the way they lead their own life, based on their conception of the differing weight and worth in a life of the enormously varied sorts of valuable things that the natural and the human world make available to us. That is, based on how, given their character, they weigh and balance those. Contemporary moral philosophy or ethics is different as a result of the long development of human culture since antiquity and correspondingly of changed bases for philosophical reflections upon our human circumstances as well as as a result of changed conceptions internal to philosophy itself as to what philosophy can and cannot reasonably hope to accomplish. The ancient philosopher's agreement in assuming the centrality of moral character, good and bad, to the conduct of individual human lives was supported in ancient non-philosophical literature and many ancient cultural practices, both in Greece and later in Rome. So in this respect, they followed these philosophical systems, followed and mirrored widespread assumptions in their own cultural media. In general, one can say that by contrast, our contemporary ethical theory, that is what is called normative ethics, concerns centrally and primarily right versus wrong actions and how to explain and perhaps justly how to explain and perhaps justly justify assigning this or that action to one or the other of those classifications. Ancient moral philosophy then starts from and focuses instead on goodness and badness of character, good and bad ways of being a person. Certain actions follow from the sort of person you are, of course, but that is a very thoroughly secondary matter. Nonetheless, despite these differences between modern and ancient philosophy, ethics is the one of the three members of my three divisions of philosophy into parts that is found throughout the history of philosophy. That fact establishes the difference that I suggested a moment ago between philosophy as a subject of study and any of the other areas of specialized study offered in our universities. Whether one is trying to arrive at a satisfactory result concerning the basis for deciding which actions are morally right and wrong, that is, for thinking about what we all owe to one another simply by, being, simply by living in the world together, or thinking and learning about human character as grounded and correct judgment concerning what is valuable in life, moral philosophy deals with questions about how, how one, how anyone ought to live. Since everyone has a life to live, this subject at least professes to concern everyone, and not in some incidental way, or in some way that can be left to others, to experts, to see to. Other subjects may and indeed do have much to teach that can have practical value, but those questions may or may not be of particular interest or concern to different individuals, given how they are placed in life. By contrast, Normative moral theory takes as its subject something that necessarily concerns everyone directly. It is inherently a practical subject, at least in part, and one that engages directly with universally applicable questions of how to live and what one ought to do or not do, whereas it seems none of the others has such a status of mandatory universal personal concern, or at least claims such a status. 
Still, ancient philosophy is distinctive in one crucial way, connected, connected to what I said a moment ago about how modern and ancient ethics construct themselves. You could say that nowadays, normative ethical theories or normative political theories attempt to tell us what we should, should do or not do, personally or politically, where questions of what we owe to one another arise, but only there. So, philosophical argument, analysis, and theory of a highly intellectual and to some extent abstract kind is offered as guiding us to correct practical decisions and actions, telling us about certain actions or policies as right or wrong, and on that basis as to be done or enacted or not. However, in antiquity, beginning with Socrates, philosophy was widely pursued as the best guide to life, as I've already emphasized, as a whole, not just to questions of right and wrong action, which are severely limited, however important, part of anyone's life. But moreover, as I'll attempt to explain in a few moments, philosophy was pursued as both the intellectual basis and guide and the psychologically motivating force for the best human life. In the motto of the U.S. Undergraduate Honor Society, Phi Beta Kappa, even if Phi Beta Kappa never understood it quite that way, for ancient philosophers, philosophy is itself the best steersman or pilot of a life, bu Kubernetes in the, in the uh, Greek adopted by Phi Beta Kappa. Over most of the thousand years of philosophy in ancient Greece and Rome, philosophy was assiduously studied in every generation by many ancient philosophers and their students as the best way to become good people and to live good human lives. One must to become good not as a mere result of philosophical study by putting into effect what philosophy tells you, but precisely in and through one's philosophical reasoning and one's philosophical understanding of the world, of what is valuable in life and of what is not so valuable. One was supposed to structure one's life moment by moment as one led it and to keep oneself firmly motivated to live it. One was to live one's life from, not just as one could put it, in accordance with one's philosophy. Your philosophy didn't just guide your life, it steered your life directly from its implanted position in your mind and character. So, in antiquity, philosophy, that is philosophy in our Western tradition, realized to the fullest extent all that moral philosophy's combination of theory and practice might involve. Beginning with Socrates, ancient philosophers made philosophy the and the only authoritative foundation and internal guide for human life. For these thinkers, only reason, what reason could discover and establish as the truth, could be an ultimately acceptable basis to any human being on which to live a life. For them, philosophy is nothing more, but also nothing less, than the art or discipline that develops and perfects the human capacity of reason, insofar as that is regarded as a power enabling us to reach the ultimate truth about reality, and not merely a pragmatic tool for achieving specific given objectives. No one can lead their life in a finally satisfactory way without philosophy and the understanding that ideally, anyhow, when finally successful and complete, only philosophy can provide. Philosophy, not religion, not cultural tradition, no other authority has the standing needed to show and declare what sort of life is best for us, that is, what sort of life fully suits us 
given our nature and our natural relationship to surrounding nature at large, including the divine nature. All the ancient philosophers agreed that there is a God. And to speak positively, when one does possess a completely grounded philosophical understanding of the full truth about how to live, by living one's life through that understanding, and only by doing so, one achieves the finally and fully satisfactory life for a human being. It was in this way that philosophy itself became a way of life. Socrates, in setting the pattern for all later thinkers in this tradition, made the activities of philosophizing, philosophical discussion and argument, central and indispensable ones of that best life. So, in this tradition, philosophy was indeed a subject of study, with basic principles and theories and arguments and analyses and refutations of tempting but erroneous views, and so on. But the whole body of knowledge that, when finally worked out, would constitute the finished result of such philosophical study was also not only the best guide to living your whole life by telling you how to live, what to do, what not to do in any, in any circumstance, not only where modern ideas of, of uh, moral right and wrong are concerned. Philosophy was the very basis in your psychology on which the best life would then be led. That philosophical understanding would permeate and shape and hold together all aspects of the life you would then lead from philosophy. Your philosophy would be the steersman of your whole life, as I put it a moment ago, by being lodged deeply in your mind. Philosophy conceived as a way of life encompassed, if not for Socrates, for reasons special to his own philosophical worldview, which I'll come back to in a moment, then certainly for his successors. The whole subject, it, constituted, it encompassed the whole subject, not only philosophy's moral part, all the major thinkers in this tradition regarded the subject of philosophy in all its parts and gave good reasons for so doing as a completely integrated, mutually connected and supporting single unified body of knowledge. The moral part was not something separable and could not be fully comprehended except along with the philosophy of nature, including the theory of the divine, logic, the theory of knowledge, philosophy of language, and above all, metaphysics, or the theory of being itself. Each of the philosophies of antiquity, Aristotelianism, Stoicism, and so forth, proposed a whole philosophical worldview as the context necessary in order to understand and fully ground their theories about the best way of leading a human life. Each of the ancient ethical theories expresses its own particular moral outlook on the basis of its particular philosophical worldview. And those are different ones for each of them in important regards. Each ancient ethical theory presents a certain conception of the place and role in human life of the whole vast array of different sorts of good things and bad things, or more generally, of things of positive and negative value that our nature as human beings makes available to us. The Platonist worldview differs from the Aristotelian, and both differ from the Stoic, from the Epicurean, and from the Skeptic. And accordingly, their moral outlooks differ too. In each case, the moral outlook expressed in the respective ethical theory derives in crucial ways from that overall philosophical worldview. For that reason, it is entirely appropriate to speak 
as Socrates and others in this tradition did, of philosophy as they conceive of it, and not merely only moral philosophy or ethics as not only proposing, but also constituting a way of life. Well, so much then for a quick characterization of the unifying ideas in the ancient tradition of philosophy as a way of life. To make all this more concrete for you, I want to shift now to talk specifically just about Socrates and Socrates' own specific philosophy and about the Socratic way of living. Since we're talking about philosophers and their philosophical views, we need to see what Socrates' and the other's philosophical reasons were what their philosophical arguments were for holding all of the underlying assumptions about philosophy and about life that I've summarized. I can't, in half an hour, do much to work out in detail the arguments that led Socrates to his conclusions. But I can, I hope, give you a philosophical sketch of them. I will focus especially on Plato's Apology, but will rely also on others of his Socratic dialogues, including especially the Protagoras and the Euthydemus. Plato, of course, wrote a, lot of, a lot of, uh, wrote a lot of dialogues where Socrates is a main character, including the Republic and Phaedo, which do, of course, have things to say about philosophy and ways of life. In speaking of Socrates, however, I am concentrating on the character Socrates as he appears in the Apology and in some other philosophically closely related dialogues, and not the Socrates of the Republic or the Phaedo. All the way back to antiquity, uh, philosophers who read Plato's work have distinguished between his Socratic dialogues, ones in which he is giving us a portrait of the man he knew, studied with, and admired very greatly, however much at the same time he is proposing a critical evaluation of Socrates' views, on the one hand, and other works in which Plato goes onward from there to develop his own philosophical theories. The Republic, or at any rate, books two through eight, book one is a somewhat... Uh, complicated case, and Phaedo belong to that second group, not the first. In any event, I should emphasize that in speaking of Socrates as the founder of the ancient tradition of philosophy as a way of life, and what I'm now going on to say about Socrates' own philosophy, I am talking not so much about the historical Socrates, as he really lived and breathed and talked and did philosophy, as about the character Socrates in Plato's Socratic dialogues and, to a lesser degree, related writings of Xenophon and others, and especially the character Socrates in the Apology. Maybe the real Socrates was somewhat different from this fictive one of Plato's and others devising. We just don't know. We do know the Socrates of Plato's Socratic dialogues, and he is the one who presents philosophy as a way of life, constructs a philosophy of his own, and is presented as living by and from it. His ideas, this fictive Socrates' about philosophy as a way of life, were in fact the pattern throughout the whole later, the whole later tradition for ancient philosophy in antiquity um, uh, uh, as part of its tradition. As a way of life, as part of its tradition. Plato's apology is Plato's rendition of how Socrates' speech to his jury of 501 male Athenian citizen, fellow citizens might have gone when Socrates was on trial at the age of 70 on charges of having violated the Athenian law against impiety. This law was thought important to the Athenians because they thought their own city's success and the prosperity of the Athenian people individually and as a social and political entity depended crucially on the favor of the Olympian gods, Zeus, Hera, Athena, Apollo, and the rest. Anyone who violated this law 
in any large public visible way was courting danger for the city and the society and had to be stopped. Socrates was charged with violating this law in just such a public way. The claim was that he, a prominent public figure, flagrantly did not show the Olympians the honor they demanded in return for their favor. Instead, he trusted his, his own private daimonion that warned him from time to time against some action he might be contemplating. It was also claimed that his philosophical discussions with the young men who surrounded him as he talked philosophy all day long, every day, in the public spaces of the city, in fact corrupted, corrupted them morally. Immorality is offensive to the Olympian gods, and so in publicly corrupting the young, Socrates was calling divine disfavor down on the whole city. Though this was not explicitly said, what Socrates' accusers had in mind here was that Socrates encouraged his young men to think for themselves on questions of morality and value in life, and that, his accusers thought, was a corruption. They were outraged as parents whose sons were getting uppity and demanding reasons for everything. We Athenians, they thought, under the aegis of our gods, already know, in our well-established tradition, how we ought to live. Um, our traditions, including our religious traditions, are the correct basis for life. And we don't want our young people to start questioning them, looking for reasons why they are correct ways of living and behaving, or perhaps not. In Socrates' speech to the jury, in response to these charges, we get Plato's defense of Socrates and Socrates' life as a philosopher. So we can turn to what the character Socrates says in the Apology about himself to get a broad explication of Socrates' philosophy as Plato understood it. Socrates presents himself as having been devoted over many years to what seems to be full-time agreement, uh, engagement uh, in discussions with various fellow Athenians and visitors to Athens. Some of them were young men who flocked around to listen to him. Some of them adult persons with settled positions and reputations in Athenian society. These discussions were philosophical in character. They consisted of questions Socrates would ask about some matter of importance for human life to get the discussion started. What do you think courage actually is? That's the organizing question of the Lakeys. Or modesty, the Carmodies. Or friendship, the Lysis. Or justice, Republic One. Is virtue one thing or some number of separate and distinct things, the Protagoras? Is, oratoric is oratorical skill a good thing? What even is it? What does it do? That's the topic of the Gorgias. He would then direct further questions to the respondent about his initial answers, seeking the respondent's reasons for thinking what he thinks and asking for a reasoned defense of them. In the Apology, Socrates connects this work of his as a philosopher to claims for his own self-improvement and that of everyone else involved in it. He famously maintains that one's soul and its condition, whether good or bad, which for reasons I will explain in a moment, he thinks is improved by such discussions, is the most important thing for anyone. That, he says, is what he's gone about the city of Athens all his life trying to convince his fellow citizens of, both old and young. This preeminence and value of the soul is the crucial claim on which Socrates' philosophy and the Socratic way of life is grounded. You see this mentioned in handout number three. It became a foundational principle for the whole later tradition of ethical philosophy among the ancients. For Aristotle, a 
uh, sorry, for Socrates. Uh, I, I, I don't know why. Um, I, I always, I think Kerry must be right. I, I always <laughs> use Aristotle's name by default. <laughs> For, for Socrates, uh, the soul is vastly more important than any of the other valuable things for human life that one, can, that one might mention. Health and strength, psychological vigor, wealth, the pleasures of sex and food or drink, a good reputation, political power, good personal relationships of friendship and love, fun, and so on. Indeed, the soul is vastly so much more important that it makes each of these other goods not just pale by comparison, but become in their very value totally dependent upon it. When your soul is in its good condition, you have something of unconditional value, Socrates claims, whereas all other goods, money, pleasure, good relationships with others, power over them, whatever it might be, are only conditionally good. Their value for you depends on how they are used, how they are fit into your life. They are dependent as goods upon and make a positive contribution to our lives only because of what we ourselves make of them, how we regard them, how we react to having or lacking them, what we do with them. That's because the soul is that with which we live our active lives. Our assessments of value, our decisions, our desires, our choices, all of these, according to Socrates, depend upon it. So long as the soul is in its good condition, which Socrates calls its, quote, virtue, whatever more precisely that may be or include, that remains to be considered, we will live well. Because if we have this most importantly valuable thing in good condition, all other potential or commonly agreed values, wealth, health, good social connections, etc., even bodily pleasure, become actually valuable for us. With a good, well-conditioned soul, we can make proper and good use of these other valuable things, and so we can live good lives. Lives to which their own goodness then makes a real contribution. By contrast, with a bad soul, we have bad desires, make bad choices, misvalue and misuse such other potential goods, and as a result, we make them bad for us and make overall a bad life for ourselves. Moreover, for Socrates, this good condition of the soul is ultimately entirely a matter of developing and maintaining a firm grasp and understanding of fundamental truths about human nature and, as a consequence of those, about the nature of what is valuable for a human being. The reason why, if you possess virtue in your soul, you will live a good and happy life is that you will then know the true value of every, of every possible sort of thing you might want to have in comparison and in relationship with all other things similarly of value. You will, in other words, know the truth of Socrates' own claim about the preeminent value of the soul and about the merely conditional value of money, position, power, personal relationships, bodily pleasure, and all the rest. Since you will never value anything else more highly, or even at anywhere close to the same level as the state of your soul, you will never value at more than their true value either external goods, such as possessions, social positions, and the like, or goods of the soul other than virtue, such as good memory or sense of humor, or native friendliness, or psychological vigor and self-confidence, nor yet goods of the body, such as health, strength, bodily pleasure, physical ease, beauty, or good looks. The true, root, the true worth 
of such potential goods is that of something to be used virtuously. And none of them have any value apart from what accrues to them through that good use. Accordingly, whether or not you are lucky as regards other goods, whether or not you have plenty of such traditionally highly valued, quote, resources for life, you will find that your soul's good condition will govern your real life, that is your active life, consisting in your actions, choices, reactions to, and evaluations of what happens to you in such a way as to make it happy and fulfilling. Pain and failures as regards these external and bodily goods and the various superficial goods of the soul do not diminish the fine quality of your life at all. The value for you in your life is achieved solely through the actions that make it up. Those are either good or bad, and virtue guarantees that they will be good. If you are virtuous, you will live in a way that fulfills your nature and makes you happy, even if you suffer disappointments, pain, and losses of conditional goods of various kinds. For Socrates, then, whatever else it may include or imply, virtue is wisdom. Virtue, the good condition of the soul, is this state of mind in which one does firmly grasp and understand the full system of human values in comparison and relationship one with another. With wisdom, he maintains, one will always live and act on the basis of that system of values. And so one will live completely happily and fulfilled. That implies, of course, that understanding the truth about what is good or bad for you inevitably and necessarily leads you to act in the way that is indicated in that knowledge, in whatever your current circumstances may, may be, with their prospects for the future and relationship to the past taken into account. With wisdom and understanding, you will always act in what is, in fact, the right way. Moreover, the fullness of your understanding will enable you to give good and sufficient reasons why what you do or did is in fact the right thing to do in those circumstances. Given what could be known about them, even a wise person isn't clairvoyant. Knowledge, knowledge of values, that is, knowledge of what is good and what is bad for a human being, has then an extreme power, according to Socrates. If you have it, it will not just unwaveringly and irresistibly govern your life, but it will make it a good and fulfilled one too. Socrates explains and defends this claim about wisdom's power. It's a philosophical claim about human psychology in Plato's Protagoras. It isn't that Socrates thinks all possibly countervailing psychological powers, powers in the soul with possible influence on your choice of which action to do or refrain from in any circumstance, will miraculously, dis miraculously disappear once you become wise. He recognizes the power of pleasure and pain, or sexual and other states of passion, as possible influences even on the choices and actions of the wise person. Pleasure and pain, or their prospect, or anger, or fear, or sexual arousal, and so on, can alter the way things appear value-wise to any agent, and so in principle also to the wise. However, Socrates argues, this power of appearance to mislead us about values is always weaker than the power of value knowledge, if, that is, we really do possess this knowledge fully and are completely wise. The question then is, how so? Here we meet a fundamental insight or assumption of Socrates, one which some subsequent philosophers, including Plato, in other dialogues than his Socratic ones, and Aristotle, will oppose. 
even if they do accept Socrates' claim for the power of knowledge. Others, most notably the Stoics, will strenuously agree with him in accepting this assumption. The assumption is this. It belongs to human nature, Socrates thinks, that when we are grown up and in charge of our own lives, any and every action we do is done with, done with and from the thought that it is the best thing, taking into account everything it occurs to you to take into account, for you to be doing then. You may be ambivalent or uncertain to some extent, as you at first reflect on the situation, if you reflect at all, but when you act, whether you reflect it or not, you necessarily are committed in your thinking to the idea that this, despite whatever you see, you may see that, that might count against it, is the best thing to be doing. Quite simply, if your mind remained unmade up, you would not yet have acted. This follows from the fact that Socrates thinks belongs to human beings by their nature as rational animals, that we can only act on reasons that we accept at the time when we act on them as sufficient to justify the action, or at least to make it the thing to do. Only the acceptance of such reasons can possibly move an animal with a rational nature to action. Our power to see and give, reason, give ourselves reasons for acting is the only psychic source of motivation within us that can actually set us upon the movements that constitute or produce our actions with their particular goals and nuanced or really gross and unnuanced appreciation of what we may be doing. Thus, possessing a rational nature entails for Socrates acting always, in a sense, rationally. We always act subjectively rationally. That is, we always act for what we take to be adequate reasons. As Socrates puts it in the conclusion of his analysis on the Protagoras, quote, no one goes willingly toward the bad or what he believes to be bad. Neither is it in human nature to want to go toward what one believes to be bad instead of to the good. Many people may regret what they have done immediately after doing it, just as they may waver and be uncertain just before acting. But everyone in acting does what they are then holding to be best because otherwise, given our rational natures, we would do nothing at all. We would not even refrain from acting. Now, from this thesis about human psychology, Socrates' claim of the power of value knowledge follows directly. Value knowledge gives its possessor an unfailingly complete basis for evaluating situations and circumstances as one becomes aware of them. This leads to a clear apprehension of the best thing to do under the current conditions, as one understands those conditions to be. If it is part of human nature always to do, if anything at all, what one thinks is best, such a person will always and only do what they think is best at the time when they act. And because knowledge makes those who possess it always right about what is best, they will always live well, happily, and fulfilled in the way I described just earlier. Other people, ones not possessed of this knowledge, will very frequently be governed by the power of appearance. It's a second fundamental feature of human nature, Socrates thinks, to be constantly bombarded by value appearances due to emotions and other feelings. Just like the wise person, they will always do what they then, at the moment of action, think is best, but the power of appearance can affect them in such a way that, because of anger or sexual passion or the presence or prospect of pleasure or pain in the near future, they form the temporary opinion 
that something would be an overall good thing to do that in fact is not. Due to the power of the appearances that such states of feeling can induce, they may even act against their considered judgment about what is best. A considered judgment that might be correct, but that when one is enthralled to the appearances, one over-emotionally displaces with a judgment based on the appearances. None of this could happen to a wise person. Even the wise may still be subject to appearances that present the options differently to their consciousness from the way they know them to be because of angry feelings or some other emotional distortion. But their value understanding is so complete and in that sense so deep and strong based on such thorough reasoning reasons that these contrary appearances and the feelings that give rise to them cannot affect their action in any way. Knowledge Value knowledge will save our lives, Socrates thinks, and nothing else could reliably do so. Here is where philosophy and Socrates' emphasis on the value to himself and his interlocutors of his discussions comes into the picture. Philosophy is the pursuit of wisdom. So for Socrates, philosophical discussion, philosophical analysis concerning human nature and human values, philosophical theory are the road to wisdom and so to a fulfilled and happy human life. Now, in fact, as you know, Socrates was pretty sure that neither he nor anyone he had met or heard of actually had yet succeeded in fighting their way through in argument to wisdom. One could reach, as he had done, a lot of rationally strongly supported ideas, as I've just been reporting, about human nature, human values, how human action is motivated through the positing of reasons in favor of the action, and so on. But you shouldn't claim to know those ideas to be true. You can be pretty convinced, and you can shape your life on the basis of them, but you can't say that holding those ideas as true as you do makes you wise, and so, makes your li- and so definitely makes your life happy. There are always further considerations about all these matters that you have not yet gone through before you could claim to have won your way through to wisdom and to happiness. Every human life is limited in that way, Socrates thinks. There's always more to think about, even rethink about. So for Socrates, you can never stop philosophizing. You can never stop doing what he himself says in the Apology he did uh, all day, every day. Towards the end of his defense, Socrates says that he will never stop his philosophical discussions no matter what. Because, quote, it is the greatest good for a person to discuss virtue every day and those other things about which you hear me conversing and testing myself and others. For the unexamined life is not worth living for human beings. If you are not wise, the next best and crucially important thing for the good of your soul is to devote your daily life as much as possible to concentrated efforts to keep on pursuing wisdom through doing philosophy. Of course, you have other things to do too. You have to eat and drink, have sex, do a job if you have one to do, raise your children, be with your friends, and lots of other things too. You have citizenly duties, aiding others in need to do, seeing to what we all owe one another uh, by being together in the same world. You have a rich, full life to construct for yourself. As to all those other concerns, the grasp that philosophy has given you of the whole realm of human values, even if you cannot claim to know it to be true, beginning with the preeminent value of your soul and its good condition, will give you the guidance you need. 
You will live from your philosophy, that is, from your philosophical understanding of values, so far as you have advanced in that understanding up to that point. As we have seen, your life will be one in which the activity of self-improvement through philosophical study and talk plays a huge and central role. In this activity, your soul, the thing of most importance for your life, attains its own fullest perfection. But philosophy will also occupy your life when you are not sitting around reading or talking philosophy. Your philosophical understanding of values will be what forms and sustains your moral character as you go about every aspect of your daily life. Thus, philosophy will play all three of the following roles in your life. This is on number four on the handout. One, in different words from those that are written there, it'll tell you how to live through its analyses of human nature and human values, and through providing you with your philosophical worldview. Second, one thing it tells you is that the practice of philosophical discussion and reading and thinking about the questions of philosophy is a terrifically good thing just in itself. Thirdly, you will live your life from your philosophical understanding of life and values. Philosophy will provide guidance for your life, but much more crucially, it will actually steer you from inside your mind as the essential psychologically motivating condition of your whole life. So much then for the Socratic philosophy as a way of life. As I've said, Socrates set the pattern for the rest of this tradition. The Aristotelian life, the Stoic life, the Epicurean life, the Peronian skeptic life, the Platonist life of late antiquity are in fact, all of them, very different ways of living from the Socratic life of constant seeking for the truth through philosophy. Most of these philosophers think they found the truth and proved it. One might think better of Socrates in relation to that view of theirs than one might otherwise. But they all fit this basic pattern. In them, philosophy serves the same three functions. This is true of all of them in different ways, which we'll have to be seeing in, in later lectures. Philosophizing itself is accorded an especially high value among all the other activities of your life. Philosophy gives overall guidance to your life, what to do and not to do, and in what ways to do these actions. And thirdly, most interesting, interestingly, philosophy lodged in a person's mind steers their life in all its aspects. To conclude, as I promised, I want to say just a few words uh, here at the end about how my account of philosophy as a way of life relates to the well-known work of the French scholar Pierre Adot. Adot's extensive work on ancient philosophy as a way of life was translated into English in two books a decade or so ago that, as I'm sure many of you know, attracted quite a lot of enthusiastic attention. One of his books was entitled, in fact, just Philosophy as a Way of Life. The other is called, What is Ancient Philosophy? Adot's work has brought the topic of philosophy as a way of life to prominence, not only in connection with the ancient philosophical tradition, which Adot and others have linked to Michel Foucault's concerns in his last writings on the care of the soul, but with selected later philosophers too. Reading his work gave part of my own impetus to get to work myself on this topic, though not just for the sake of product differentiation, I am currently calling the book I'm completing and drawing on in these lectures Ancient Philosophies as a Way of Life in the Plural to emphasize the very great variety of and important philosophical differences among the ancient philosophers in this regard. Much of the enthusiasm for Edo's books among UK and US philosophers and others in the humanities, uh, humanities field 
came from Addo's interest in what he saw as ways in which the ancient philosophies resembled religions. He emphasized, to my mind, greatly overemphasized, the role in ancient philosophies as ways of life of what he called spiritual exercises. He got that term from St. Ignatius of Loyola, the 16th century Spanish founder of the Jesuits. According to Addo, such things as daily examinations of conscience, meditations, not of course, as with St. Ignatius, on Christ's life, but on that of the founder of one's philosophical school, or other famous paragons of 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 their school's way of life. Prayers, in short, devotional, spiritually purifying exercises of all sorts, were, for the ancient philosophers, essential means of strengthening one's moral and philosophical resolve uh, to live according to the precepts of one's philosophy. That's what um, Addo thought. Uh, They belonged, for Addo, these spiritual exercises, to the essence of ancient philosophy. Addo wanted to say that these practices were essential to ancient philosophy because they were necessary in order for anyone actually to live their philosophy. He suggested that this had always been so in the ancient philosophical tradition. Even for very early philosophers like Parmenides, the logician and metaphysician who lived two generations before Socrates. His book, What is Ancient Philosophy?, treats ancient philosophy itself as a whole as a special kind of philosophy that, unlike our or the medieval kinds of philosophy, was a way of life. What Addo had to say about devotional exercises did, I think, apply at very late stages of ancient philosophy in the 4th to 6th centuries of the Common Era. This was, in fact, not coincidentally, his own special area of expertise. But it actually did not apply earlier. For Socrates, or Plato, or Aristotle, or the classical Stoics, or even earlier Platonists in late antiquity like Plotinus in the third century. What was crucial for philosophy as a way of life all the way through is that what was to keep you going and keep you living your philosophy was nothing more than your fully developed philosophical understanding of what you thought was the truth about human beings and their place in the world. That's what I've emphasized in this talk and will emphasize in later lectures. In fact, no quasi-religious devotional practices such as Addo describes had or even could have anything essential to do with living a life of philosophy given what philosophy itself, both in antiquity and in fact in its whole history is, namely an exercise of reason. You can't strengthen your rational grasp of truth except quite incidentally by any such external spiritual self-manipulations. It is true that as pagan philosophy declined to its death over the last centuries of its existence, Platonist philosophy, in its efforts to remain relevant in an age of spiritual crisis and discontent, borrowed from religion, both pagan and Christian, the sort of devotional exercises that Addo speaks of, as well as religious rituals of various kinds, as as ways of achieving union with their philosopher's God, the one that is beyond being, which is the ultimate goal of uh, the philosophy of Platonism. But that was a crisis time in ancient cultures, and Addo was badly mistaken to take features of philosophy as a way of life at that culminating point of the tradition and read them back onto the tradition itself from the beginning. The result is a badly distorted account of what ancient philosophy was and of how, unlike most of philosophy over its long history since the end of antiquity, the ancient philosophies managed to be ways of life for their adherents. Thank you.